Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. I'm Lucia Rahilly. We've got to start training our managers and leaders. We have a different operating model now. They're going to have to learn how to actually check in with employees rather than just walk by cubicles and give high fives. That's McKinsey talent expert Bonnie Dowling. She joins us today to talk about how leaders have got to adapt their style to meet the changing and sometimes conflicting preferences of their workers. Bonnie, welcome to the show. I want to start with you. Are people still quitting or do we think there's going to be a stabilization in this churn we've seen over the past couple of years? What we're seeing in the quit rates each month is that we still haven't dropped below 4 million people quitting their jobs per month in the U.S. alone. That's a lot. I would say that the relationship between employees and employers has fundamentally shifted. Yeah, and I think it's been a lot easier and become a lot easier to shift jobs post-pandemic. I think at one point during the pandemic, and this may have abated a little bit, you know, four out of every five people that took a new job mm-hmm. in a different city were not required to move. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side, social capital is lower than it's been in a while. So the ties that bind at work don't bind as tightly if the only time you've met your coworkers have been remotely. And so that combination of ease and lessening of the ties makes it easier for people to move, and we're seeing it. First time we ran, healthcare and education were both on the lower end of likely to leave, whereas leisure and hospitality and a few others were higher. Uh, The shortages right now in education and and healthcare, and I think some of this probably is COVID hangover, pandemic hangover. They're flooding out. They are they are short in a way, and obviously Bonnie's an expert on this too really gets that they're short and they're short in a way where it doesn't look like supply is going to come on in anywhere even close to the way to fill it. I think for some of those sectors, it's not just that people are fleeing them. It's that there's not the pipeline to bring people in either. So for the first time in forever, the nursing pipeline has shrunk. We actually have fewer people going to nursing school now than we had previously. I mean, there's been a shortage of nurses for as long as I can remember. And I say that as a nurse. It was a job that people used to be excited about and people used to go into. My mother is a nurse. My sister became a nurse. But even as I followed this industry for some time, what we're now seeing is a change. We're seeing that fewer people are joining the profession as a whole. And that's also true for teaching. From my perspective, I think there's been a shift a shift with this new generation and what people want to do and the jobs that they're excited about. I mean, the number one job that high school graduates want right now is to be an influencer. So as employers and leaders, we have to start thinking about how we're going to build pipelines into these more traditional jobs, how we're going to attract people into the industries that maybe don't seem as exciting as, say, influencing. Bonnie, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, we're basically lapsing into the world of like role design, right? Right. When we think about how are we actually going to make our roles and our industries attractive, roles that we've thought we couldn't provide any kind of flexibility with, roles like nursing, roles like manufacturing, we have to get more creative. I was speaking with the CEO of a manufacturing company the other day, and they had had 12 positions on the books for four months. They had gotten zero applications. Full-time positions, frankly, pretty well-paid full-time frontline positions. They had some of their 
most tenured employees come to them and say, hey, this isn't working. We're going to quit because we're tired of working 50 hours a week. It's just too much. You have to figure this out. They created a new role, 12 hour anytime. You worked 12 hours, any 12 hours over the course of the week. It was a minimum. If you wanted to work two hours a day for six days a week, you could do that. If you wanted to work one 12 hour shift, you could do that. Ultimate flexibility, right? They put those roles up and within three days they had 170 applications. Beyond that, they've had success converting some of those individuals into full-time employees. Similar story in so many professions that we have shift work. The need for flexibility is as great as it's ever been. The desire for flexibility from employees is perhaps greater than it's ever been. But we have to, as leaders, start to think about what does flexibility really look like and how can we start getting creative with things. And 41% of people said they quit their jobs because they didn't have professional development and career advancement opportunities. If you want to draw people back in and make your industry sound exciting, that might be a place to think about. So let's get a little bit more focused about why folks are leaving their jobs. Mm -hmm. The pandemic seems to have illuminated the value of flexibility for many folks, particularly for parents and for caretakers. But we still see some companies, not necessarily in the healthcare fields, reeling back certain kinds of flexibility. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, some of, them, some of them quite famously had made a pronouncement that by a certain day, everyone has to be back. And when only 40% showed up, they had to walk that one back. I mean, there is just, there is something here in powers and numbers. You're rolling the dice if you put a line in the sand. You know, what happens when you draw the line in the sand and then you get a response like 60% show up, show up? I mean, when we had Phil on, remember Phil was saying pre-pandemic, the occupancy data on offices was abysmally low anyway. It was, you know, it wasn't mean, it wasn't at the levels like now, like when no one's going in, but it was never 100. So our latest research breaks down workers into different personas. Brian, can you talk a bit about what might draw people back to work? What we found is there are a large number of workers that are still traditional workers. They're still motivated by compensation, where I'm going to progress in the company. It still matters what their interactions with their manager are like, but those people may come back because we know there are several other segments of the workforce that are prominent and growing, people that are anchoring on flexibility first, the ease to pick up a gig job, whether you're a travel nurse or a designer or even somebody that's you know a management professional, the ability to pick up that uh, gig work and define flexibility on your own terms. That segment of the workforce is big. Caregivers, people who are uh, retiring or near retirement age, all have different motivations. One- You've got the idealists who are hoping to change the yeah. world, yeah. right? And so if you're looking at all of those segments and the folks in those segments – That's a significant part of our workforce. And in a world of talent shortage, get everybody. Hey, how can I customize propositions that actually meet the needs of the workers who fill our needs? In 2016, 27% of American workers define themselves as independent workers. This year, it's 36%. So an independent worker is anybody from somebody that drives an Uber to a lawyer hanging out his or her own shingle. So if you are a traditional company in the traditional way, gosh, it's hard to think about 
how you're going to get all of the talent you need if you're not thinking into how do I tap into those segments that would otherwise go into work for themselves. Right. We've had two years where most companies were down staff. They didn't ratchet down revenue expectations when they were down staff. It was they needed people to go above and beyond to over deliver. So think about what Brian's describing. Now that's just straight. Are you in or are you out and in the seat? But the quiet quitting thing is people going, oh yeah, okay. All right. You're going to force me into this basically transactional mode. You're not getting a damn ounce more than the bare minimum. And basically all, all of our economic models require extra role behavior, answering email at night, taking a call on the weekend, right? Whatever. Think about all the things, even thinking about work outside it. How many jobs still have it where you put the tools down? You put the tools down. A good portion of our economy requires thinking and doing and contributing outside the normative hours. The irony of insisting on people coming back at a specified time while asking them to be available outside hours and constantly giving ergs of energy to it, it's so mismatch to any kind of like an, an emotional uh, emotional exchange. You're just, you, it's using up and saying, you will do this. That doesn't surprise me that people are revolting, but not quite quitting. But it's interesting, you know, Bill, because the quiet quitting trend has taken off on TikTok, Instagram, all that. I mean, it's it's a big trend. I'm seeing reels about it all of the time. But I think that it's also one of the reasons that people want to bring people back to the office, leaders and bosses, because they say, oh, well, they can't quiet quit if I can see them, which frankly is just not true. You would be amazed at how much shopping I can do online while sitting in a cubicle. I don't know if quiet quitting is always bad. I think there's a spectrum. Certainly, there's the quiet quitters who are doing absolutely nothing. And that's bad. You don't want those folks. But I think there's another group of people that are saying, you know what? You hired me to do X job. But now you're having me do X plus 150% of that or X plus Y job. And I'm not going to do that. I am burned out from that. So I am going to come in and I will do the job that you hired me for and no more. And we as employers need to figure out how do we define that job that we're asking them to get done and probably be a little bit clearer there and build that relationship and build that understanding so that it's not a matter of quiet quitting and it's instead a matter of balance. It's a little bit of a two-way street, too, because you've got quiet quitting, but you also have quiet firing, where employers aren't have kind of written somebody off, but haven't given them the feedback, have kind of pushed it to the side. And in both cases, what you're having is you're not having a real conversation between the manager and the employee of what's going on, of where we're going, of how they're spending their day, of how they're of how they're moving. If you just had people having those conversations, I think both the quiet quitting and the quiet firing phenomenon start to tamp down quite a bit. Feels like you're saying you need effective leadership. Welcome to the pod, Bonnie. <laughs> <laughs> we have a running clock on when I'm going to go on a rant about suck less as a boss. I was so happy to hear you say that. So more people actually quit as a result of their bosses than just think about it. So it's something that actually translates to action, right? I'm not sure that's a recoverable violation. You know, the point when you decide you're done with a person, it's much harder to come back from that, right? But it also says, look, we've got to start training our managers and leaders. We're in a different world. They need to lead differently. It's not going to work to do the exact same thing that they did back in 2019. We have a different operating model now. 
right? We've got hybrid virtual operating. They're going to have to learn how to actually check in with employees rather than just walk by cubicles and give high fives. And they're going to have to understand what it means to manage productivity. Butts and seats was never a great measure. So Bonnie, just say a bit more about that, because vis-a-vis retention, suppose you've successfully pulled from some of these different categories, Brian, that you described, and you've agglomerated folks who have these kind of different preferences and different priorities and different incentives. How does that create a more complex challenge for managers? For example, I mean, just from a team building perspective, is it harder to foster cohesion among teams that have such a variegated constellation of priorities? It certainly could be, right? The more diverse your workforce is, you're going to have to think about how you're including everybody in a different way and how you're creating an inclusive team environment. I was speaking with an IT director. She had about 300 people under her in her department. And she said, I want to offer flexibility. We can offer flexibility. But at the same time, everybody wants something different. I have people that want to work three 12-hour shifts. I have people that want to work five-eighths. I have people that want to work a little bit seven days a week. Like I don't know how to give them the flexibility when we're still a team in a department and we need to have this time together. And I said, well, look, why don't you think about core collaboration hours? Do an analysis of your calendar and figure out what meetings your team, your department owns and see if you can start to establish a time frame and say, this is when we expect people to be, to be together, to be available, to schedule the meetings. But what you do outside of that time, how you do the rest of your work, that's up to you. You want to do it all in one go? Do it all in one go. You want to do it at 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. every morning? Do it that way. You know, figure it out like that. So what they ended up doing was they said, from 9 a.m., I believe, until 2 p.m., Monday through Thursday, were core collaboration hours. That gave them 20 hours a week. And they said, that's probably enough meeting time for just about anybody. The other 20 hours, you figure out how you want to work them. Massive engagement improvement. People were really excited. She was able to accommodate and create a much more inclusive team environment for people at all different walks of life with all different working styles. But what she had to do was she had to talk to people and she had to understand their definitions of flexibility and do the work behind it to figure out an inclusive model that could really work for everyone. It means you should, as a manager, be having the conversations you should have been having anyway. Right? And, you know, what are the priorities? What are you working on? How are you spending your time? When do we need to be together? Uh, what do you need from me? How can I help accelerate things? Those are all things that every manager should be spending a couple of days a week of their time doing. It was a good idea to spend that time with your individual team members before the pandemic. It's critical and mandatory now. I actually have a story for that one, too. I was speaking at this conference of auto executives. And they had this polling that they were doing kind of throughout the conference. And one of the questions that was asked in the beginning was, how many of you drive an electric vehicle? I'm going to go with 90% of those in the room raised their hands. Everybody's driving an EV. Great. That's exciting. Then I started talking. And I asked how many of them had actually polled their employees around what they wanted when it came 
to return to offices, to future working models, etc. And about three people raised their hands. And I said, wait, so more of you drive electric vehicles and actually talk to your employees? But part of this might not be ill-intentioned, right? I'm thinking about myself, for example. When you are overburdened in part because of the talent gap that we're talking about, you don't always have time to have several conversations a week with every person who's on your broader team, right? So you need to have that kind of portfolio redesign at the top. Leaders have to be able to lead, right? You need the time to do it. And if you're asked to do a bunch of other things, you need to go through your role and figure out what actually matters. And your people matter. And what about performance management for those different segments? Like, how transparent do you need to be about performance management and goal setting for someone who values flexibility versus a traditionalist who might value, for example, career advancement? It really is a now more than ever that ties into all the purpose stuff. If you're going to take me away from home, what I'm doing has to matter. Seeing where they fit in so they have real role clarity. The participation in the goal setting is an interesting one, right? Because many people have been raised traditionalist where it flows down. I would argue... The people who it has to work for them, the people who are fiercely independent, people who've had a taste of their own thing, they really want to be engaged in what am I going to be judged on? I think maybe to a greater extent than many leaders will have been comfortable with in the past. Your job as a boss has changed. It is not feed the beast. It is be with the people who are taking our brand promise in their hands. We're taking risk in their hands every day. If one thing has come of this, where we recognize the segments and the employees, they're all demanding something resembling of it has to work for me. I think the fulcrum then becomes the boss. The boss cannot just try to use one size fits all. There are manufacturing companies that have changed the shifts which people work to better attract caregivers who have obligations uh, in the earlier and later parts of the day. So they've literally created shifts that you can drop your kids off at school do a modified shift, and then be back in time to pick your kids up from school. It's not your typical eight-hour shift. They alter what jobs to be done are across the shift. I thought one of the coolest things I've seen companies do is what a trucking company was doing. And they had tons of people that were willing to sign up and become a truck driver for them. And then what they found is that the truck drivers were leaving. And when digging underneath why they were leaving, a big part of it was they were being asked to either pick up or make deliveries at very inconvenient hours. So middle of the night, et cetera. And so what the organization did is said, look, this is the demand we have from our customers. There's not a lot we can do with it. And then they really pushed on it. Is there really not a lot they can do with it? And so then they took a employee experience view to what they were going to charge their customers. They said, you want us to pick up or drop off at a time when all our drivers hate? You're going to have to pay us a lot more to do that. And what do you know? They saw a significant decrease in turnover and customers begrudgingly would take it because they would rather have the delivery happen sometime than having, you know, misshipments and the like. So it was a very interesting, I thought, and very tangible example of, hey, listening to what employees really wanted and then questioning how the operation worked and then redesigning the operation to get it to you know, meet the employees' needs. If workers are mostly feeling pain in their pocketbooks now, are we seeing in the research that the solution to retention may simply be to raise wages? 
wages would seem to be becoming more important now, both because of churn and wage pressure because of churn and also because of inflation. Compensation has to be in the general range. If you're going to pay me three times as much money to do something down the street, I'll consider doing it down the street. But if you're throwing an extra 25 cents, dollar um, an hour at somebody or an extra $5,000 a year, it is appreciated particularly in this inflationary environment. But what you're seeing is if you just gave that, we're not seeing it creating loyalty or stickiness to bad jobs. Compensation is one of the top six factors. It's not the top factor. But it's also important to think about where you are in the economic spectrum as well, right? Because the 25 cents an hour more, the dollar an hour more, the $5,000 a year may not matter to white collar employees. It may not be as important of a differentiator, but I was working with an agricultural company that was paying their employees $10 an hour. They hadn't made a single hire since October of 2020. They raised the rates to $14 an hour. That is a 40% increase, but actually still doable without losing money for a lot of different reasons. But they had 70 applicants within the next two weeks. It matters at certain stages at certain socioeconomic levels, it really, really matters. How out of whack is the demand of talent versus the supply right now? It's actually crazy. So there are 5.7 million people looking for jobs right now. There are 10.7 million open jobs in the U.S. alone. That's a 5 million person gap. That's more than the entire full-time employed population of the state of Oregon. There aren't enough people leaving current jobs to fill all the jobs that are open. Oh, and then demographics are working against us because there are more old people than people graduating from high school. And so if you think about what's happening across our country, this is what happens when economies start to stagnate because you end up having more people that have retired than you have people entering the workforce. Guys, great discussion. So good to see you. Always awesome. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahilly with Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions for Brian and Bill, write to us at McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we may answer your question on the show. Be well.